FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm very happy to have all of you with us for our show today. We have a terrific panel lined up, as we try to do just about every day on this show. Uh, but some returning regulars join us today. It's Thursday, which means Kevin Riley, the editor, the boss of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is joining us. How are you, Kevin? Uh, doing well. Good morning, Bill. It's great to be here, and it's great to be in Atlanta, right, on the day after the Hawks won another playoff game. Unbelievable. They really do seem to be a team of destiny, as many sports uh, writers like to say, Kevin. Yes, uh, there's no phrase that's not overused in sports writing. <laughs> An alert goes out to the sports writers on Kevin Riley's AJC staff. <laughs> Adam Van Brimmer is here. He's the editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News. Uh, Adam, uh, that sounded like a shot across the bow at those sports guys at the AJC. Yeah, and that's that's rough because I spent a good uh, 15, 20 years of my career in sports. So, Kevin, uh, you better watch it, bud. <laughs> yeah, well, we know he's kidding. We, we're not going to really hold him accountable for that. Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University, is with us today. You've got a brand new president at Georgia State and a history uh, maker in, in, in the uh, bargain, too, Amy. Yes, we do. So, you know, we're, we're, we, we all haven't met him and, and learned about him at the same time everybody else did. So we're sort of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic because uh, – there's definitely some things that we need to work on at Georgia State, and so I'm excited to see what he proposes and which way he takes us. A, f a first African-American president of the university, right? Yes, which is definitely long overdue, given that we um, we actually, I, I'm super proud of this. Like, we not only are a minority-serving institution as well as a Hispanic-serving institution, um, but we actually graduate, even if you put us in a group with um, HBCUs, the most African-American students in the country. Really? That? I yep. had no idea of. Thank you for sharing yeah, that. We also, We're also graduate the most uh, Asian-American, sorry, we graduate the most Asian-American students and Hispanic students in the state. Wow. Thank you for that. Fred Smith is with us. He's a professor of constitutional law at Emory University and has already told us he's got his tickets for a Hawks game when they're back in Atlanta next week. Right, Fred? Absolutely. I'm, I'm excited. I've been telling uh, friends for weeks who aren't really kind of sports people. I'm like, I'm telling you very, very soon. <laughs> the Hawks are gonna, even if you're not a sports fan, everyone's going to be talking about the Hawks. And I think we've crossed over to that moment, uh, which is exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very exciting. Um, I want to make a quick comment about yesterday's show. As many of you who heard it, you know that we talked for a while about the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops who are moving toward uh, trying to deny President Biden communion because he is uh, pro-choice. Not the first time that uh, Catholic bishops, who are by and large uh, here in this country, a conservative lot, have tried to stop a, uh, a politician who supports a choice uh, from receiving the sacrament. But in this case, what's interesting, as we pointed out yesterday, is they are at odds with the Pope, who has said he does not want that to move forward. Um, I made the comment that that's odd because we know the Pope is infallible. 
And I got a couple of really good messages from you out there who are listening who pointed out to me that the Pope, I'm Jewish, who pointed out the Pope is only considered infallible when making pronouncements on doctrine that's handed down through scripture and tradition. And so it's probably debatable as to whether a papal pronouncement on pro-choice elected officials uh, would be considered such doctrine, and in that case, the Pope would not be considered infallible. I'm grateful to all of you who pointed that out to me. Well, maybe a little later, I know Adam Van Brimmer, you said you wrote a piece about this the other day and got some pretty strong pushback, yes? Yes, and, and just back up to what you said, I, I'm pretty sure that this does involve doctrine. So uh, if I were you, I would oh. not uh, I would not feel too... I would not feel too sorry because that's basically okay. what we're talking about I, here is the sacrament of Eucharist a, and doctor. I'm, I'm just a Jewish man trying to navigate my way through the Holy no, that wasn't, that wasn't, and uh, That wasn't a knock on you. That was a knock on the people that are giving you pushback. And, no. and either they don't understand or, or maybe I don't understand. All right. It's, it's, All right. Let's put that aside for the time being because we do, Kevin, have some stories that are popping up in the news that we really want to talk about. Kevin, yesterday... Uh, President Biden uh, delivered his remarks on his effort, what he believes is an important effort to um, attack gun violence in this country, which we all know is spiraled out of control. Atlanta has seen like a 60 percent increase in gun violence and homicides here over the last year. And 2020 was a bad year to begin with. And um, as part of the effort, he has chosen Atlanta as one of 14 municipalities that are going to work together to increase investment in community violence intervention. And his, and is telling the cities to devote some of, something like $350 billion, this is for all the cities, toward programs which, uh, things like beyond policing, youth programs, workforce development, and that sort of thing. But it's an acknowledgement, Kevin, that the president realizes that Atlanta is one of the cities that really needs to change. Yeah, that's absolutely true, Bill. And of course, this has been the number one story in Atlanta, I would argue, for over a year now. And we have seen all kinds of fallout from it. Of course, we had, I mean, just overnight, we had several killings in Atlanta. Um, for those of you who are tracking this or, or and it, it's uh, it's terrifying and sad, and it, it seems to these things seem to be happening more and more in places where people don't expect it. And there's absolutely no question that this effort about Buckhead leaving the city and creating its own city has its roots in the crime and violence that have hit Atlanta. So I think that uh, while this is a nationwide effort. There, Atlanta is as typical of the problem as any city in America. Um, Adam, we, we don't want to confine this to Atlanta. Savannah has had seen some horrible yes. gun violence, including a recent uh, mass shooting. Yeah, we're, we're locked right in the middle of it as well. About a week ago, we had a, a shooting outside a, a house here that, that eight people were shot. Two of them have died, and it's just a, a part of a rash of of gun violence that's going on in Savannah. And I'm sure that, that Atlanta's somewhat the same way as it tends to get, we see, we tend to see a rise in gun violence this time of year as, as school kind of ends and, and the weather warms up and it's, uh, but it's something that 
is really being uh, addressed by our police department here. Uh, later today, the district attorney here is launching a task force that's aimed at, uh, at combating gun violence. So it's definitely top of mind here as well. Fred, um, you know, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has for a very long time now uh, called this uh, the COVID uh, uh, outbreak of violence. She's pegged it specifically to COVID-19 and and a number of Democrats, including in some ways the president and his remarks said the same thing. Um, but there's also been a very political side to this that I really want to delve into. And that's that Republicans are now attacking Democrats, saying that the uh, that last summer, in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, other shootings of by policemen of, of black individuals, uh, these calls to defund the police have encouraged lawlessness on the streets of our cities. Um, respond to that, or or comment on that, if you would. Sure. I mean, the the political uh, reality of it is undeniable, right? If crime goes up under Republicans, then Democrats get blamed, as was true last year. Uh, crime goes up under Democrats, then Democrats get blamed, as is true now. So, um, so it, it's up to Democrats who are now um, in charge uh, to come up with a meaningful solution to this. Um, I think about this as safe justice and just safety, um, and uh, one doesn't have to uh, one doesn't have to pick. Um, you know, is this a result um, in some Is this connected at all to um, uh, to COVID or is it more related to protests? It's hard to say. I mean, I would say in, in, in Atlanta, though, right, uh, last summer, um, although there was a proposal to reduce um, the amount of money or to temporarily reduce the amount of money the police force got, that didn't go through. Uh, and police officers got a 33 percent raise. Um, which is uh, which is significant. Uh, that's what happened in Atlanta last summer, um, and so you know. So if you just kind of want to test, uh, you know, take the variable defund, right, uh, and uh, and then take the variable crime going up, um, they don't appear to be uh, as related um, as uh, as some would like to think. And so, um, and th- and that and that's the way we kind of have to think about this. It's a it is a policy problem to be solved, not a political. Um, sword to be wielded if we're actually going to solve this problem. Um, one of the things that I think is difficult is that there is sort of a belief that sort of having more police on the streets necessarily results in less crime. And that's really not what the criminal justice literature finds, right? That it's not simply just sort of seeing police. And there's also the fact that, right, police are trained, um, and again, the criminal justice literature really gets into this, right? They're trained to solve crimes after they take place, right? They're really not there to sort of prevent crime in the same way that we think about it, in part because of the constitutional uh, prohibitions that are sort of put in place, right? You can't just like, if you think somebody just looks suspicious for sort of no good reason, you're not actually allowed to like just stop them and search them and things like that. And so part of what happens is a lot of the criminal justice literature has found that, right, the actual sort of stopping of crime before it takes place really has to do with a lot of these social interventions that um, this program looks to be sort of getting at, right, is figuring out sort of what are those root causes. one is, to be perfectly blunt, the wide population, right, especially for talking gun violence, of access to guns, right? If you can't get access to a gun, then you can't 
utilize one, right? But it also has to do with issues of poverty. It has to do with where um, sort of options for people of where they're able to go, right, after school, um, at night, things like that. And so there is sort of this sort of mixed message that goes in that because, again, the criminal justice literature has really sort of found that um, it's not simply about sort of more stringent penalties or just seeing more police on the streets that really results in um, a decrease in crime. But that seems to go against a lot of times the sort of our view of what should lead to a crackdown on crime. Well, you know, following up on something Fred said that I thought was a really important point, which is the, the, the problem we're caught up in now is it has become political, right? And everyone will state their view or how to solve this problem in the extremes. I mean, from defund the police to fund the police more to um, and, and instead of it seeing it as a social uh, uh, and societal problem to, to try to be fixed, because, you know, there are things I mean, Amy points it out, too, that about all of this that are there and are not in dispute. For example, in almost every case, a homicide detective will tell you a person who shoots and kills someone knows that person. These are generally not random crimes. It, I mean, it's not to say those are never random crimes, but in fact, they know each other, and it's a dispute that escalates. But also, I thought it was interesting that the president, within his comments, used the words public health. This is a public health kind of problem because that brings us all the way back to, you know, obviously an important institution here in Atlanta, the uh, CDC, that began studying uh, gun violence as such an issue and then got caught up in the, in the politics of it. And, and now that is sort of coming back around. But in fact, um, you know, Amy, Amy points out the literature there's a lot that we sort of don't know about how to fix this. And when it, get caught, it gets caught up in politics or simply hire more police, spend more money, spend less money, it, it really um, it, it doesn't it doesn't get us any closer to solving it, it seems. Um, it, it, yes, um, you're, you're right. This has become really a, a political, a partisan political issue. The president acknowledged that, in, 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 in fact, uh, yesterday, I think, when he said, now is not the time to turn our backs on law enforcement. And we do know that there were liberals last summer uh, in the aftermath of these horrendous police shootings of black people who, um, who said, you know, if, if not completely defund the police, which in many ways was an exaggerated message, but who said, let's start diverting resources away from police departments and put them uh, to use in other kinds of community programs um, or uh, programs that would uh, offer mental health uh, to people who were marginally potentially to potentially violent, um, and and Republicans have used have started using that very effectively against Democrats. And now I think Adam, it's interesting uh, to uh, point out that um, even in the uh, New York mayor's race. The, the person, the candidate who came in first in ranked choice voting, we don't know that he will be the um, Democratic candidate for mayor of New York yet because they're still counting votes. But Eric Adams, the former uh, police officer, ran his entire campaign on increasing police presence to stop violence, a Democrat in a liberal community. So there does seem to be a shift in how Democrats are looking at the message of, of violence and, and police, Adam. 
Yeah, and policing is all it's always local, right? I mean, that's with everything that that went on last year here in Savannah. Uh, not so long ago, we were in tough straits with crime and and gun violence, and of course, we had a police chief that ended up in in prison uh, on corruption on corruption things. And so here in Savannah, I think the police the the support for the police has has never really wavered uh, over the last year, year and a half. Now that said, we've had some we've had some incidents with our police in recent weeks and recent months. We had a uh, we had a a suspect who hung himself while or apparently hung himself while in police custody, and then we had a couple of police officers that shared a a meme that kind of poked fun at that whole incident. And last week, that resulted in a in some fallout. They fired five police officers connected to both of those incidents. So it's it's one of those things that that the police. Um, it's it's a hard time to be a policeman right now, and in police departments, it, it can end up undermining themselves in some cases. So whether it's Democrat, whether it's Republican, I think it, it depends on where you are and and how your police department conducts its business. And uh, certainly here in Savannah, we're in a we're in a delicate spot here, and I know that certainly with what's going on in Atlanta, uh, what happened last last summer with the the shooting outside the Wendy's that resulted in, in such a uh, Richard Brooks uh, resulted in some real tough times. So it's, it's, it, yeah, it's political, but at the same time, it's all politics are local, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and in that uh, respect, uh, uh, you know, Fred, obviously crime and uh, gun violence particularly is right now the only issue in the Atlanta mayor's race in much the same way it has been in the New York city uh, mayor's race, right? Yeah, so I was uh, I was actually in New York over the weekend, um, and you know took the opportunity to ask uh, all my friends at different moments, um, you know, what do you see as the number one issue? And yeah, but and it, it was public safety for sure. Um, I would say that um, that in Atlanta, it's even more true that it's public safety, though, right? I mean, in New York, it was public safety, and then I would say quickly followed with competence uh, and mm-hmm. uh, and. Um, you know, and, and the Eric Adams story is interesting because he he's a former police officer. He also the, didn't receive the uh, the police union endorsement um, that went to Andrew Yang, um, and you know, and I think he has tried to navigate um, kind of what I was talking about earlier in terms of, of just safety. It's I mean, it's um, it's not it's not justice for a kid to get shot by anybody um, at um, you know at at. at uh, uh, at a mall um, or on University Avenue, um, that's not that's not justice um, um, either, right? And so, so I think he has tried to talk about it in this particular way. Um, uh, so he's against um, defund as such uh, and slashing the budget um, necessarily, but he's um, but he's also in favor of reform, and I think that's kind of where the median Democrat is today, right? Yeah, it's also a really interesting thing. I mean, sorry, if we say focus on sort of the politics of New York is right. I mean, there's a lot of attention obviously focused on the mayoral race uh, in New York City. But there were also races yesterday, for example, for the mayor of Buffalo, the mayor of Rochester, where um, very progressive candidates, one who talked a lot about sort of not necessarily, and I think this is maybe where the issue becomes, right? We can sort of think of an emergency call goes in and who does it go to? And at least sort of in Buffalo, the argument was, look, if we can say that this is an emergency call that's about somebody in 
crisis for mental health reasons, the correct person to respond is probably not an officer with a gun, but somebody who's trained in how to deal with someone in the throes of a mental health crisis. And so that's who should be dispatched. And, you know, sort of bringing it back even to Atlanta politics, that's why we have the creation actually of 311, right? And it has been found to actually work really quite well. It's a non-emergency line where, right, you don't think you need someone, right, you're not in fear, but there's an issue that needs to be solved. And so you can call, they come in, right, the focus is on sort of um, possibly providing mental health, providing other social services. And I think this is where a lot of the confusion comes in because it used to be, um, and I think this goes sort of broadly, right, Fred mentioned increasing pay. That's actually super important, right? Increasing pay means that you also, right, you're able to more, right, this is a big deal for Atlanta, to get people who live in the city, right, who are part of the community, who are able, right, to then be officers, right? It attracts, right, not shockingly, stronger candidates. And it also means that you can sort of focus more on differentiating between, right, and training, right? I know people hate that word, but it's true, right? How do we respond in different situations? Because not every situation is the same. And a call about an armed robbery requires a different response than somebody seems to be in a mental health crisis and we're not quite sure what to do. And so I think that that's part of where this comes in. But I do think it's interesting, right? This is where, you know, as political scientists, look at those down-ballot races because they are telling somewhat of a different story than what we're seeing just with kind of that top-line race in the New York City's mayor race. And so watching Buffalo, watching uh, Rochester, watching who won actually the DA race in uh, Manhattan is wildly different, and that could be really interesting. Um, Amy makes a good point, Kevin. I got to get to a break. But before I do, uh, the Buffalo race where a, uh, a very liberal candidate, uh, surprisingly, won uh, against a much more moderate. Uh, it, 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 that's one side of the Democratic equation where where there's this concern about too much funding to police. We've got to look for other resources. There's going to be a fight within the Democratic Party itself over whether we'd better stop, Democrats better stop talking about defunding the police uh, on, in, in, you know, the moderate wing of the party as opposed to those progressives as reflected by the Buffalo mayor's race, Kevin. Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be a tough issue uh, for Democrats, and it's a tough issue for anyone who wants to express nuance, and that's the real problem. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. And when we come back, I want to talk about the Supreme Court of the United States, because we have with us Fred Smith, professor of constitutional law, and Amy Steigerwald, who, in addition to her work in uh, more general political science courses, also is an expert on the federal judiciary. So we'll talk about that and more when we come back on Political Rewind. AJC editor Kevin Riley, Georgia State University political science professor Amy Steigerwald, Savannah Morning News editorial page editor Adam Van Brimmer, and Emory constitutional law professor Fred Smith. Join us, Fred. I'd like to get you to start with this on this next one. We all knew when we watched this, the last three Supreme Court nominees come before the Senate Judiciary uh, panel, we knew that Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, and Neil Gorsuch were going to, if they were confirmed, vote to overturn not just Roe v. Wade, but they'd eliminate the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare as well. And yet, Fred, when the court 
uh, handed down a decision last Friday on the latest challenge to the Affordable Care Act, which, by the way, uh, came from state attorneys general, including Chris Carr here in Georgia. A 7-2 court said, nope, Obamacare still stands. That was fascinating to a lot of court watchers. Uh, sure. Um, what was the, the decision was not on the merits, right? That is to say, the decision was not right. about the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. It, um, uh, and the only people who opined about the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito, said that it is unconstitutional in its entirety. Um, and so we don't really, we still don't know where the other justices are on the merits. Instead, this was about a doctrine called standing, which simply means that mm. if you bring a suit, then you need to have an injury that is caused by the person that you're suing and that a court uh, can do something about, can redress. Um, and in this particular instance, because of the individual mandate, uh, that, that tax penalty is now zero dollars. Um, uh, the court said, now that it's zero dollars, we don't see an injury here. Um, there, there's other challenges to the Affordable Care Act, though. Uh, I mean, it, it, this is kind of the never-ending story. There's, um, there's still kind of there's uh, religious exemptions that are being sought in the lower courts um, for different types of medication, including uh, medication, the medication prep, which prevents uh, HIV and AIDS. Um, and so, uh, so it, it'll be uh, there. The, the story is not over uh, yet, even though. Gosh, it's been ten years since the first version of this case, uh, but uh, but 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 uh, you know the litigation keeps on coming. Yeah, but Amy, Fred makes a good point here. Um, it it was not on the merits. Um, the mm-hmm. the majority, the seven justice uh, majority, uh, said that these attorneys general did not have standing. Uh, because they couldn't prove they themselves were injured parties in terms of their efforts to overturn Obamacare. Um, And in fact, one of the things that Justice Alito said in his dissent was, why don't we deal with this head on? Why do we keep avoiding dealing with the actual heart of the issue instead of uh, putting it off by talking about standing? At the same time, Amy, the fact that Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh were willing to go along with Justice Roberts and, and, and Stephen Breyer, the liberal more, more uh, moderates on the court, uh, to use standing as an excuse or, or as a reason um, does suggest that they're not eager to overturn Obamacare, or, or am I wrong about that? So this is the part that can be really difficult on this, right? We spend a lot of time talking about sort of ideology on the Supreme Court. We as political scientists are definitely uh, guilty of this because we talk about sort of their ideological preferences and conservative and liberal rulings. But one of the realities is also that they are not answering policy questions. They're answering legal questions. And a lot of the sort of, you know, when we talk about sort of liberal versus conservative, it doesn't fall on our sort of normal um, access that we think of in the policy realm because we're talking about it in the legal realm. And so the legal version of sort of liberal and conservative doesn't always fall in these neat lines that match up with policy because their question is not, do we like the Affordable Care Act, right? Their question is, is it constitutional, which is a different issue and sort of brings it up and can see in this different ways, right? That's why, for example, right, when uh, last year sort of blockbuster Title VII decision, Gorsuch was in the majority and wrote the opinion, right? He is very much 
a textualist who says, what do the words say? Whatever the words say is how I have to now interpret this law. It used the word sex. That means that how it is that somebody is viewed due to their sex is what we have to look at. And it doesn't really matter in what context you use it. it that's what it says. Right? There isn't any sort of wiggle room on that, and so it breaks apart. And so we sort of see that here. And it will one, one way to look at it, and certainly a lot of people say the use of the so-called threshold issues is about avoiding issues, but it's also the fact of, right, one could see it in a different way of the court saying, look, some of these issues are not ours to decide, right? This is kind of a little bit also political question doctrine. If you've got a debate over the policy, hey, Congress handle it, right? That's not our job to deal with it. We need the other branches too, because we're here to answer the legal questions. Right, and, and I, that's exactly it, is they're not there to legislate from the bench. And I think that that gets overlooked too often in just about every phase that has to do with the Supreme Court, whether it's, it's who should be sitting on there or whether it's left-leaning or right-leaning or what have you. But Congress has had the opportunity to to address affordable care, uh, you know the, the Republicans had had every opportunity for two years in order to what they called repeal and replace, and it and it didn't happen. So when it comes to Obamacare, it, it needs it's in Congress's hands. I know that Congress seems to basically give up their their power to everybody, whether it's the president or the Supreme Court or what have you. But this is one instance where where Congress, which is as we know pretty dysfunctional right now. If they want to have any kind of real movement on this, it, it needs to happen on Capitol Hill. Fred, I want to come back to you uh, uh, because you made that statement. Um, this this isn't over yet, right? Um, and I want to I want to ask you to kind of elaborate on it because isn't one of the problems uh, for the from the ideological point of view where Republicans are so committed to undoing this law that everything that Almost everything that's left is immensely popular, right? And is that why, you know, when they when they went after, say, in this case, uh, uh, kind of a narrow argument, um, they've got to be careful because they could end up um, winning, but but somehow losing because they've they've undone a law that a lot of people like, right? Perhaps, although I mean, right, the goal seems to be um, to eliminate the entire law um and and so in this particular instance the two dissenters justice gorsuch and, and justice alita um they not only said that the individual mandate was unconstitutional they said it's inseparable from the rest of the law despite amy the fact that the law says that just because one part gets eliminated you don't eliminate the rest so that actually justice gorsuch um has been uh, crit uh, criticized um, on textualist grounds for joining that particular opinion um uh, and so the idea, I mean, I, now it seems to be in some respects it's become a symbol um, more than it's become uh, about policy. Um, that that it's become this kind of grand uh, prize, and I think you know, I think that for some segment of their base, um, and and maybe this is less and less important to their base as the years go on. Um, to your point, but but I think for some segment of their base, they think that that's a that's an important uh, prize, um, and I think that. Um, they expected to win 10 years ago, and they didn't. And so some of this might not even be savvy politically. Um, it's, it just might be kind of coming at it from every angle um, that they can because they, they came very, very close 10 years ago, right? And justice, the chief justice um, was initially with the dissenters. They had the votes, according to, to books that have been written about this, um, and he switched at the last minute. 
Um, and uh, so to, to losing that way, I think, um, for some folks on this issue was, was difficult and they want to keep trying now that they have. So um, it, more go ahead, Fred. I apologize. That, that's, that, that's all. I, I'm, I apologize, Fred. Um, it, it, there are some observers, Fred, who uh, kind of read the decision, uh, the majority decision, and, and assumed that this is three strikes and you're out. Time to stop bringing uh, Obamacare cases to the United States Supreme Court. We don't want to hear them. Do you think there's any, any truth to that? Or you mention all these other cases that are bubbling up in lower courts. Do you have every reason to expect that if they get as far as that the Supreme Court would want to take any of them up as they move through the system? It depends on what the lower courts do. So if the, if the lower courts uphold, uphold the Affordable Care Act, then I think the Supreme Court would prefer to stay out of it. But if the lower courts do what happened in California, Texas, and strike down the Affordable Care Act, um, the Supreme Court doesn't really have a choice. Uh, I mean, they, they always have a choice. However, um, when it comes to important federal uh, uh, statutory questions, include, especially lower court opinions that strike down a federal law, um, they routinely grant those cases, uh, even if there's gotcha. not a circuit split. Maybe Adam, I do think. Bef- <laughs> I'm sorry, I keep stepping on you. No, no, I, I keep, I keep, I keep, I keep taking our positive. <laughs> not your fault. <laughs> no, <laughs> Adam. There is a question, though, before we move on to another subject, as to whether Republicans are going to continue using the Obamacare uh, uh, Act as a as a wedge issue against uh, Democrats. That seems to have fallen by the wayside. It certainly was not a big issue in the 2020 election cycle. Yeah, if it if it benefits them, if it gets the base fired up, and this isn't just Republicans, this is of course on the other side as well. Is if it inspires your your base and gets people out and excited and engaged, then they'll continue to use it. And I, I'm sure that it's been this way for forever. But certainly the last ten years, if you find wedge issues, you keep banging on them, whether it's border wall or Obamacare or defund the police or what have you. Um, all right, let me move on. Amy, I want to talk about another uh, issue uh, that's of interest uh, in terms of the Supreme Court. They're coming to the end of the session, and one of the rulings we're still uh, waiting for is uh, there's two actual, two actually uh, cases that pertain to Arizona state election laws. Um, one of the cases has to do with um, voting out of your precinct. In Arizona, um, if you go to a precinct that may not be your uh, your own precinct, and by the way, this is a Georgia law too, so that whatever the court does could have impact here. Um, Arizona said that even though you may have voted on that ballot for a number of people who are statewide candidates, like governor, lieutenant governor, or whatever, mm-hmm. because you voted out of your precinct with a provisional ballot, your entire ballot is thrown out, not just the votes you cast for people who are uh, candidates within that particular district. So that's one of the cases the Supreme Court has to decide on, right? Yes. So it's that issue as well as um, the question of whether or not basically a a third party can take your ballot for you and turn it in, especially an absentee ballot. Um, And kind of the question there is whether or not, right, these are potential restrictions or if they are ones that um, sort of disproportionately harm, uh, especially minority voters and thus run afoul of the Voting Mm -hmm. Rights Act um, and portions of Section 2. And 
part of the issue and in, in sort of in front of the court is trying to sort of figure out, like, what are the issues that we should look at? So at least in oral arguments, uh, some of the justices were very concerned about, right, well, if this is about sort of keeping sort of election integrity, right, preventing voter fraud types of the issues that we've heard, then maybe these are sort of sensible measures and there are other, there's ways for, it's not that voters are prevented from uh, being able to cast a ballot. At least one of, uh, I think it was one of the justices said, look, this isn't a literacy test, right, where you've got the subjective person who is saying like, oh, we're going to make a decision. Instead, it's simply a rule that has to be followed. On the flip side is the question of who is it affecting and in what ways is it affecting? And then also, I think, right, to what degree does uh, the state or the county then have to try to aid the person in fixing it, right? So for just to kind of, especially when it comes to voting at a precinct, some of the question becomes how far do you now have, like, number one, how difficult is it to figure out where you are supposed to vote? So there actually was an issue in Georgia uh, right here, actually in Midtown, uh, in the last electoral cycle, where during the primary, they completely changed a bunch of the voting places and did it sort of the night before. So tons of people were showing up not knowing where to go vote. And there became a real question of, well, where do I have to go elsewhere to be able to cast my ballot? How difficult is it for me to be able to get there? And that's one of the issues in Arizona because um, – Many of these precincts in some areas are like 50 miles apart. So it's not yeah. simply go down the street. It's literally kind of drive across the state. Kevin? I want to I want to put this question to Fred as because uh, we have the great advantage of having a constitutional expert here on the show today, Bill. But, I mean, what, what I think is confusing for Georgians now is exactly – who makes the rules about elections? Because we've been told that counties are in charge of elections in Georgia, and, and despite all the problems with that, that's the way it is, and that's the way it should be. And now we've had the state legislature pass laws governing elections, including a law, part of the law that would allow the state to take over a, a county election under certain circumstances. And then we've just had this debate at the federal level about a brand new law. So as just an average person who's trying to understand who gets to make the rules, explain this, Fred. All right. So uh, <laughs> when it comes to federal elections, um, Congress definitely has more authority than it does when it comes to state elections. Um, and that's because of a clause in the Constitution called the Elections Clause. So sometimes uh, Congress can enact um, legislation pursuant to that. Um, and then Congress also has the ability to enforce fundamental rights. Uh, so under the Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, it says that Congress has the ability to, to enforce the rest of the 14th Amendment. Um, and the 14th Amendment includes equal protection and, uh, and fundamental rights, including the right to vote. Um, Congress also has the ability to enforce the 15th Amendment, uh, which bans discrimination on the basis of race or color in voting. Um, so, uh, so, then, so Congress then does have some uh, power here. Um, outside of those situations, though, um, it's generally up to the states. So, so states have, uh, as long as they don't um, violate the Constitution or, or violate a law that Congress has passed pursuant to one of those provisions, um, they have the ability to uh, to regulate um, to regulate their own uh, elections, and that's I mean, that's the that's the simplest way to um, uh, to put it. Um, so what's happening now? Uh, the state of Georgia passed this particular passed the law that it passed. Uh, you know, Texas passed the law that uh, well <laughs> almost passed the law that it almost passed, um, and uh, and now um, 
part of what Congress is looking at is, well, using its authority under the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, um, is there something that it can do in order to protect the fundamental right to vote um, in ways that might displace some of those state laws? Um, before we get to our final break, let me uh, another quick question. And Fred, while the ball's in your court, I'll ask you. Um, one of the things about the Arizona election laws um, is that this is, you know, the court will, will issue a, a um, ruling on this uh, within the next week. The, we know that, uh, that, that Georgia's election laws, some laws passed in other states by Republican legislatures, are going to move up through the court system. I know every case is uh, its own case. You can't draw comparisons. But, Fred, are there clues, going to be clues as to how the court may view challenges in Georgia and other states to a state election laws that the Arizona decision could give us? Well, we're surely going to be looking for one of the interesting things about this term is it looks like I mean, there's been a lot of we're probably compromises, but certainly there's mm-hmm. been a lot of narrow opinions that involve um, the various wings of the court uh, as we as I think the public has to think about them. And that may be what happens here. I mean, I do think they're going to uphold the, uh, the the Arizona law, but just kind of um, people are going to definitely be looking for, for clues. because I mean, this is it's, it's not a constitutional case. It's a statutory case under the Voting Rights mm-hmm. Act. So, so the Supreme Court has already gotten rid of Section Five of the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. So now, mm-hmm. you know, people are like, "Well, what? Ex- what how far? What are they going to do with Section 2? All right, I've got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a moment. There's a couple more issues I'd love to get to before we run out of time on today's show. One of them, Kevin Riley, is that the University System of Georgia's Board of Regents has named an interim chancellor of the university system, Teresa McCartney. She's already been working uh, in the university system in high level, a high-level position. She's been praised by both Democrats and Republicans for being someone worthy of certainly having the job on an interim basis. And the question remains whether in the long run Sonny Perdue is still a candidate for that job. That certainly led to a lot of political turmoil on this decision to, and, and who they're going to pick, Kevin. Certainly based on my email inbox, there are strong opinions on whether Sonny Perdue <laughs> ought to be considered or uh, should not be considered. I think what it does show is just how important this job is in the state of Georgia. As we know, it's one of the highest paying jobs in Georgia, of course, but um, the future of the state, I think, is really all very much attached to the quality of its higher ed system, right? And I think that uh, many people are arguing Georgia is in a unique position to perhaps hire one of the leading minds in education in this case, and historically, I think there's been a little bit of like, uh, let's hire an insider, often uh, because of budget crisis or something like that, apparently. So I think as this plays out, we're going to get a view on how um, how seriously uh, leaders of this state take its the future of its higher ed system. Adam, it, this is just yet another example. I keep pointing them out on the show because they're there that politics has infected partisan politics, has infected virtually every aspect of our public policy these days. Yeah, and it's, it's really unfortunate, too, because Georgia higher ed is – I don't know that there's anything more important for, for this state, whether you're talking about education, whether you're talking about economy. 
every aspect of, of life in the state revolves around our higher ed system, the University System of Georgia, which is, has been so strong for, for so long. And the whole idea that you would put a, a political uh, a political employee in here, even somebody as, as well-respected and, and as proven as, as Sonny Purdue has been as, as a leader in the state for so long, he's not an, he's not, he doesn't come from an education background. So if you have the opportunity to hire somebody that, that does have an education background that can bring a new perspective and new ideas to our higher ed system, then you, you need to do that. I mean, come on. This is just, it, it really is troubling. Amy, just a quick uh, word to finish out this topic. Um, Steve Wrigley, who is retiring as uh, mm-hmm. chancellor at the end of this month, uh, points out this is an incredibly complex job. There are, it is one of the most complex jobs in uh, the state of Georgia. And you're part of that university system, uh, Amy. Yes. So I am definitely not a neutral observer on this because this would be the person. But I mean, so the University System of Georgia is currently 26 different institutions. Uh, They range from right what are actually sort of community colleges up to research one universities with doctoral programs and research, right, sort of Georgia Tech, UGA, the Medical College of Georgia, GSU at the top there. And part of it is that, yes, right, they also serve an incredibly diverse set of students, of uh, types of modes of delivering instruction and understanding those differences in an educational context, which is not the same as, for example, right, Sonny Purdue is obviously, I mean, he did a great job actually as agriculture secretary, but that is wildly different than the educational context, and that's unfortunately what the accrediting agency was talking about when they sure. threatened to pull it. That's exactly right. All right, we'll continue to watch how that develops. I want to close the show, though, with a completely different story. Uh, it was announced yesterday, HarperCollins, the publishing house, announced yesterday, along with the King Estate, that they have reached a deal to publish a number of Dr. King's works, again, uh, republish works, particularly aiming to get young people to understand how important Martin Luther King Jr. was. What's powerful about it, Fred, is that it was Harper and Rowe, which now is HarperCollins, which was the first publishing house to decide to publish a work by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. They published Stride Toward Freedom, the Montgomery story, which told the story of the Montgomery bus boycott. They published it in 1958, and I just want to read from one portion of it. He, Dr. King's words, often the question has arisen concerning my own intellectual pilgrimage to nonviolence. In order to get at that question, it is necessary to go back to my early teens in Atlanta. I'd grown up abhorring not only segregation, but also the oppressive and barbarous acts that grew out of it. And he goes on from there and then says, so when I went to Atlanta's Morehouse College as a freshman in 1944, my concern for racial and economic justice was already substantial. And, and he writes about reading Thoreau on civil disobedience. The idea that young people may be exposed to some of this work for the first time, Fred, seems very powerful to me. Yeah, it is really beautiful. And actually, as you were saying, when he went to Morehouse, uh, he was, you know, 1944. He was born in 1928, right? So he was at that point. Uh, he was either 15 or 16 years old. Uh, so he was a young person him, uh, himself at the moment that you're uh, that you're describing. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's in this moment uh, in which there's so many things that are uh, divisive. Um, you know, when it comes to questions of uh, racial equality, 
Um, it is nice to have uh, some folks in our grand national story, <laughs> uh, like Dr. King, uh, for whom you know across the, the political spectrum we can um, uh, we can unite uh, and, and celebrate and uh, and look to uh, to help figure out our way out of um, uh, out of racial injustices. Adam, yeah, I'm I'm really eager for this for this bill, and I'll, t- I'll tell you why. And I'd be interested to hear if Kevin has had the same experiences in recent years around Martin Luther King Day and other times. I have tried to or have wanted to reprint some of his speeches on the opinion page, and let's just say that his old publisher was not the easiest to work with, and it got to the point where uh, after a lot of back and forth and a lot of haggling over price, we just didn't run it. And it was, I thought it was really disappointing and, and kind of broke my heart. Now, I don't know that this new deal will affect how it goes with, uh, with reprinting and republishing uh, of King's speeches in, in news media, but I will be, uh, I'm eager to find out. Kevin? We, of course, have run into the same thing because, uh, just to be blunt about it, his family and heirs are particularly protective of his intellectual property. And, and you know, beneath that, I think there are some reasons that um, are worth understanding, whether uh, people agree with them or not. But all that said, um, I do think that a chance to understand someone like Dr. King in his own words, in his own reality and, and his travel through life is really important because when having taken the time to read some of the stuff, not all of it, you find out that the mythology around Dr. King can sometimes obscure the, the difficult work that he did and the personal struggles that he had. And I think understanding him better makes him more real to more people. Yeah. Um, we're running out of time, but Amy, one of the things this made me think about at a personal level is I moved to Atlanta in the fall of 1983, and I remember just how thrilling it was to realize that I was in the center of the city. I moved to the city that was the center of the civil rights movement, the home of Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. and Andrew Young and even Hosea Williams and John Lewis. It, it's, it's an extraordinary thing that we live in, in, in a state and a community that has that legacy. Definitely, and it's one of those where um, he has written so much and so many people only know little snippets and only have ever read small little parts. And we need to read the entirety of it. We need to listen to all of the speeches and get to learn from him. Yeah, I should point out, I'm not sure how much HarperCollins is publishing, but I thought it was great to read a little bit from Stride Toward Freedom. I'm not even sure that's part of the list of books they will republish. In any case, we're completely out of time for today's show. Amy Steigerwald, Fred Smith, Adam Van Brimmer, Kevin Riley, thank you for a terrific conversation covering so many interesting topics. Um, We're out of time. We're back tomorrow, of course, with another show. I'm Bill Nygut. I will see you tomorrow.